Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brett Tomlinson. This episode was recorded on location at the Princeton Soccer Conference, a student-organized event featuring pro soccer executives, players, and journalists. My guest is Tyler Lucy, class of 2017, a forward for the Portland Thorns FC in the uh, National Women's Soccer League. Tyler broke the Princeton records for career goals and career points in her senior year. In fact, she broke the records of Esmeralda Negron, who was sitting next to her on a panel about 20 minutes ago. Um, Tyler was then drafted by Portland and has spent the last three years playing there for a team that is regularly among the league's best. Uh, Tyler, thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, It's great to be back at Princeton and uh, being on this podcast and being involved with the Princeton Soccer Conference, so I appreciate uh, this interview. Great. Uh, it really was a great panel, um, and and there are a lot of takeaways that, that, that I picked up, but, but one interesting discussion I thought was how women's soccer is marketed. Um, Brooke Elby, the, the uh, president of the NWSL uh, Players Association, spoke about how the game is sort of packaged in an inspirational way. Um, Look what you can achieve. Uh, And she would rather see it marketed for the athleticism, the competition, and simply as great soccer. And and, and she was quick to to point out that that's her opinion, not the the league's opinion, uh, not the position of the players overall. But I saw a lot of nods in the room. Uh, Is that something that resonated with you? Uh, You know, that the league has to kind of move beyond just looking at the, the 12-year-old girls and their parents as, as their fans, but but kind of cast a wider net. Yes. Um, you know, the league needs to obviously expand um, having, you know, Nike and now Budweiser and, you know, ESPN as platforms um, is huge in promoting the women's game and spotlighting every single player. And uh, I'm so fortunate to have been drafted by the Portland Thorns and playing for them for three seasons. And they really invest um, in each and every single player. Um, and they make banners. They're always cheering. And it doesn't matter if it's a game day or not. They are professional fans. That's what I call them. Um, they really are excited about, you know, not only the team, but, you know, using that energy that they bring all the time not just when it's game day but the enthusiasm in their lives and that unique ability to be truly themselves um is something that needs to be spotlighted for all the nwsl teams um and in order to promote that and promote the players um the fans also need to promote themselves and work with their managements um in order to promote everybody um, and work with each other um, and have a platform with ESPN that will expand the game. And luckily after the World Cup, we had ESPN um, come on board and uh, broadcast the first game at the Thorns at Providence Park and uh, versus Orlando. And, um, you know, the fans showed up in numbers as they always do. Um, but you know the game it was the game was uh something I will never forget um and you know it ended up four three and you know luckily I was on the back post to put the ball in the back of the net as the last play but that could have been any single one of my teammates 
um, every single person on my team is that good. Um, and that's just how every single team in the NWSL is. Every single player is that good. Um, and even when the World Cup players left, the teams, every team still did very well. Um, so I think that, you know, spotlighting every single player um, will not only just increase, you know, our platform, but uh, grow the game. And I wanted to ask you about that that goal in particular. <laughs> what is that like when, you know, that ball comes across the box and you get your head on it and it's in the back of the net and 20,000 people are already standing <laughs> and they just explode like that? I mean, what, what, what's that like for you? Um, so obviously as a forward playing at Princeton, I've scored many goals. Um, but any goal I've ever scored, I didn't just do it myself. It was... An entire team effort um and I always say it's you can't do anything without the team um so when I scored the goal I couldn't do anything without my teammates and Megan Klingenberg playing a perfect ball and getting in the right spot um to follow it in but I also couldn't do anything without the fans I mean in an interview uh the chair of the Rose City Riveters who stand behind or standing behind the goal and cheering as loud as possible uh, the chair of um, Rivers is a woman named Gabby Rosas and she was saying in an interview because Budweiser actually gave them the uh, supporters award of the year um, said that she the fans literally sucked that ball into the back of the net they have so much power enthusiasm that somehow with that energy but not only the energy from the Riveters but they got everybody up and going they're like let's go um, and uh, so it went in the back of the net. It wasn't, you know, anything special. I've headed the ball in the back of the net before, um, but uh, once it happened, I just, I just ran to the corner. I was, I was so excited and just like the passion. And I don't think I've ever heard the stadium get that loud before. Um, so it was a, a, a moment uh, I will never forget um, as a, as a soccer player, and you know, now as a professional soccer player. Um, when people talk about the future of women's soccer not just in America, but, but worldwide, they always mention Portland. I mean, this is the example. Uh, Thorns FC drew about uh, 20,000 fans per game last season, which is nearly double the number, number two team in the attendance stats. It's the best fan support. It's a truly passionate fan base. Um, what are the lessons that you think other cities can kind of take away from the example of Portland? Not every city is Portland. I mean, there's a great heritage of, of soccer there, but but in kind of building that fan base and, and uh, you know, letting those fans express themselves in the way that they do, what, what are the lessons that, that other cities can take away? I think the lessons is, you know, the Thorns um, management, uh, really just lets the thorns be who they are be them be their unique self um let them you know they spend their money on making banners for every single player or making huge banners before the game starts um they even had a they have a stage for them so that the leaders can get everybody up and chanting and um you know going for the game but that lasts 90 minutes they don't sit down they have organized songs they have chants they have Within the game, there are certain minutes where they'll start singing a song or having a chant. Um, so, and like I said, I call them professional fans um, because they really are. They do their job as well as we do our job. And they're supported by the management as well as we are supported. 
Um, and I think that's something that the fans, other fans of the NWSL can take into account is if if you start with a small group, I think the Thorns back in 2013 started with 45 fans, had an organized meeting and said, how are we going to grow this game? Um, and once they started with those small fans and making banners, everybody wanted to see that and be like, well, I want to be a part of that. Um, because they were able to chant what they want. Sometimes it's not always the best thing, obviously, when there's younger kids, but at the same time, that's who they are, um, and they stick to that. So I think with other teams, if they have a small fan base, they need to somehow, with banners and chanting and, you know, red, blue smoke, whatever their color is, purple smoke, really get everybody involved um, and create what the small community they have and grow it to everybody else so they come back more and more. Because I know that when somebody goes to a Thorns game and they see the Riveters and see what they're about and they're yelling and energy, they're going to come back. Without a doubt, they're going to come back. Um, So hopefully that'll help. Rewind to uh, your Princeton days. Uh, I know every alum, athlete or not, uh, has a story of how they got here. how did you get here? I mean, I, I imagine uh, you had opportunities to, to play at, at a number of uh, other colleges. What, what was it about Princeton that, that drew you in? Uh, Princeton was always my number one choice um, ever since I was little and knew about Princeton and visited the campus a bunch, um, kind of fell in love and knew that obviously it would take um, a lot of work academically um, and athletically, but um, growing up um, in a very athletic family, um, I kind of, you know, always had that mentorship and uh, from my parents and my two brothers. Um, so always was kind of very mature about how I went about things in my studies and um, with soccer. I mean, when I was younger, I played a lot of sports and obviously around 12, 13 when I was playing, um, I mean, I started playing club soccer when I was six. But it was around the age 12, 13 when I kind of stuck with soccer. And I was like, this is this is a sport that I've loved since I was three when I started. But this is the sport that I know I can take and uh, really build upon um, the craft. But with the craft, you have to keep working at it because it's so competitive. Um, everybody wants to go to UVA and Stanford and UNC and, you know, those schools. I was interested and they were recruiting me. But at the same time, I wanted to have a different experience of going to Princeton, have this unique experience of I'm going to get the best education in the country, if not the world, and be a scholar athlete. And to be able to handle both things is something that from a young age, I grew up with um, the ability to do. Um, So I thought, why not, you know, take a chance, work as hard as I possibly could in every aspect of my life. and uh, really uh, um, just, you know, love my experience at Princeton. Um, quintessential part of the Princeton experience is the, the thesis. I know that you wrote about women's athletics in the early days of co-education. Um, what did you learn from, from doing that research? Oh, it was, I loved doing the research. Um, my thesis was uh, exercising their equality, co-education athletics at Princeton University after 1969. So in 1969, women were admitted to Princeton. Um, And that involvement with women and men in the classroom, obviously there was, you know, ish, you know, men were kind of needed to get used to women in the classroom. And, you know, obviously Title IX, 
1972 came along where women now can participate in women's athletics. Um, so timelining that and talking to athletes at the time in the 70s and 80s um, who went through that process and the coaches and administrators, um, it was really great to see how their involvement not only in the classroom but in athletics really helped them feel that they can create an environment where it's gender equal um, and be able to use their platform not only in athletics but in the classroom and say no I am smart enough I know exactly what I'm doing um, and I think that is that has brought um, such a great environment to Princeton athletics but Princeton women in athletics um, and even today when I was here as a Princeton athlete and a student athlete I felt that I belonged but as a woman athlete I definitely felt that the work that they put into um, pioneering for us um, has definitely been something um, that is special and uh, has moved the equality um, for my years so well. How, how do you think that your experience as a, as a student athlete here was, was different than, than it may have been for, for the, the women of the 1970s and 80s? Obviously, they didn't have you know, all the facilities. They had to go to the administrators um, and ask for you know, uniforms and balls and just the little necessities that you need. Um, and, or that they weren't allowed to play on the basketball court or do certain things um, because that was, it was just the beginning. Administrators had to figure out how to work with women and give them the same opportunity as men. Obviously that wasn't there before Title IX. Um, so this was this evolving um, evolution of women's athletics. Um, and today, when I was at Princeton, I felt I was given the same opportunity as men. I was given great equipment and field access. I mean, Robert Stadium is amazing. Um, to have two fields, but to play on a grass field um, is something very special. So, um, I, I mentioned your records. You, you obviously had team success. You had individual success at Princeton. Um, you're a big time scorer. As a pro, it's different. I mean, you really need to earn your spot on the field. Uh, and I've, I've talked with other alumni who are professional athletes, you know, going from the star of the football team to a practice squad player in the NFL, it's a difficult transition. What has that been like for you to kind of take that, that step to a, a higher level of soccer? Yes. Um, so the transition, obviously, at Princeton, um, I would play in every single game, play a full 90-minute game transitioning to professional soccer where you have the best of the best. So they were the best at their college, um, either the best forward, the best midfielder, defender, or goalkeeper, um, and started and played every single game. So going professionally, that's not going to happen right away. Um, and you have to work even harder than you think you did at you know the school you went to here at Princeton to be able to maybe get in the game for you know a couple of minutes. Once I got drafted, I actually waited... Um, to graduate and finish my thesis because obviously this is a huge part of Princeton and you know I wanted to have that experience and graduate and finish my thesis that I've been working on uh, and uh, so after I graduated in June a week later I went out and moved to Portland and 
But just because I was drafted didn't necessarily mean I made the team or had a contract. I had to work for two and a half weeks training with the team, working as hard as possible, probably harder than I ever have, just to get a contract. But once you get a contract, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be starting every single game. Um, you have to work every single day because every team has U.S. international players. They have We have players from Australia and Canada and so many international players that are on their full international team and the starters of their full, full international team. Um, so how do you, I, as a new professional athlete, work my way into that? Well, I got to work harder every single day in practice than they do. And that's pretty hard because they're, they're really good. Um, so when you surround yourself with incredible and world-class players, you have to rise to that occasion and step up as much as they do every single day. Um, but that's something I've always had um, and something I've kind of learned from a young age is I'm going to give 110% no matter what in anything I do. Um, so to not only be surrounded by them, but then to look to them as now my teammates and I get to play with these Im- incredible players um, is something that you just have to work for every single day because I'm not just going to be given the opportunity because, you know, I was a four-year starter at Princeton. I have to work for that. Um, and it's kind of a, a new, it's a new level and a new step um, that's not just going to be handed to you. Um, you got here for a reason, but what are you going to do with that now? Um, so obviously in my three years, I've kind of, you know, subbed on, I've started a couple games, but anytime, whether I'm playing a minute or 90 minutes, I'm going to give my all. Um, and I want to be able to, you know, bring a new level of energy and help my team win. And this came up in the panel, the, the issue of stability in, well, it's, it's an issue in any professional sports league, but particularly in this league, you have players who have been with the same team for a number of, number of years, yet they still don't consider the city where they play to be their home. Now, I know you personally uh, don't live in Portland in the offseason. You come back to, to where you're from in, in Maryland. Um, is that a, you know, a personal choice or is that necessity uh, that you need to, you, that you can't stay in, in Portland, that you need to come home? So obviously, yes. Um, you know, the season's between six and eight months, depending how far you go in the you know, if you make it to the NWSL championship. Um, so I have, you know, a couple other jobs outside of being a professional athlete. Um, I created a, co-founded the National College Recruiting Center with my older brother, who's a professional triathlete um, and who's in a second year of law school, um, which is a professional text-based mentoring that helps young scholar athletes and their parents are involved and connects them with professional collegiate and or professional athletes um, in many different sports. It's not just soccer. Um, as my brother is a professional triathlete, he can help them in three different sports. Um, so, and as well as I'm in commercial real estate, um, an executive in that. So I work a lot in DC. Um, so that's why I do come back um, in Maryland and DC in the off season um, to you know create another you know revenue for myself. Um, but, uh, I have, uh, idea moving forward that, uh, I think will, will help, uh, generate more revenue for all the players in NWSL and help 
generate you know revenue for girls coming out of college who want to play professional soccer and who want to just be professional soccer players they don't want to have one two three jobs outside of that they want to be fully funded um and have that as their revenue and and this is uh <laughs> this is the idea of the not just uh getting fans to kind of buy in metaphorically but to buy in literally literally to, to have an ipo yes. for nwsl yes so ever since i graduated uh i've been working and obviously the numbers and um data will always change but taking the nwsl public the fans and the players will own the league um so the selling of stock at five dollars um a share will generate uh money for the first year in the ipo which is the money we need um and then which solves the salary problem and it generates new income and this is an experience that you can't do in the nfl mls you know la liga mlb nhl any other professional sports league they're too big they're worth billions of dollars um so i think right now is a great time for the nsl because we're kind of this small um knit little thing and we can become bigger so that everybody will generate more income and it's not just for the players it's also for the fans um and the stock the nsl stock will pay dividends and you can buy and sell it um so how do we extend this experience because the fans they want to be known and seen as owners of the MSL. so in order to do that you have to have an additional source of added revenue and by doing that you brand say you say brand the nwsl owner on all the merchandise and gear that you already buy that the fans already buy anyway they buy balls, cleats, you know, shin guards, scarves, headbands. So you add NWSL owner or property of NWSL owner on those equipment. Um, so that little bit of, you know, 5%, $10 on about, you know, say it's $200 minimum of that merchandise. That little bit will generate enough income for 40 to 120 We'll create a 40 to 120 million dollars because four to 12 million obviously numbers are changing there could be it could be eight or nine million girls and women play soccer um so that's enough to fund and create 20 to 30 new nwsl teams the owners will still be the owners um they'll still own their nwsl team um and this will also allow us to play in bigger and better stadiums um but it's the thing is, is the fans and the players will own the league and create this shared experience. So that's my idea and been working on it and cultivating it for years. So kind of this is this uh, Princeton Soccer Conference is the first public uh, announcement of this idea of mine. W women's soccer, th there have been two leagues that, that didn't make it. NWSL is, by all accounts, growing and and. and on a, a sustainable trajectory, um, I hear a lot about slow and sustainable growth and, and, and all that. Does that sound reasonable to you? Or do, do you think that this is a league that should be kind of thinking bigger or, or thinking, you know, big ideas uh, like, like an yes. IPO? So an IPO obviously is a very big idea. And um, 
I think it's, you know, a great time to do it now. It'd take, you know, around two years to complete. Um, but I think, why not? Um, you know, maybe it's a big idea and obviously there's going to be a lot of, you know, pushback and, you know, people will like it or not like it, but everybody wants to make more money. We need to make more money so that this league will continue for 30 years. I want to look back and say that this league is now huge um, and not still just trying to make, you know, little, little money every year. Um, So it's an idea, but, uh, you know, something that I want to push forward and, you know, hopefully people will buy into, literally. (laughs) When you were in high school, I mean, this, this was just the type of thing that was, was, getting started I, this was not the league that it is today uh how does it make you feel to kind of you know put on that uniform and be able to say that yeah i'm i'm you know yes i have other jobs uh it's not a a singular thing for me but but i get to be playing with the best players in the world yes so ever since i was little obviously i would watch uh, the first two leagues and go to get those games and, you know, look up to those players um, and sometimes even be fortunate to just kind of play pickup or even train with some of the players when I was 12 or 13. Um, and uh, to now, you know, have a jersey representing the Thorns, representing the NWSL with my name and number on the back um, is, is something truly special and I'm representing women's professional athletes not just soccer professional athletes because everybody knows especially at Thorns as a Portland Thorns they know who we are um so you know you just have to give your all and uh just go for it well Tyler thank you so much for joining me this has been great to uh, to speak with you well it's been great speaking with you as well I uh, really enjoyed it and uh It's been great being back at Princeton. If you've enjoyed this interview, please subscribe. The podcast is available by searching for Princeton Alumni Weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And transcripts for every episode are available on our website, paw.princeton.edu. This is our last episode of 2019. We'll be back with more monthly interviews on the podcast starting in January. Happy New Year.